it's getting hot in here. So take up all your clothes. I'm gonna take my clothes off. Okay, so we just heard a minor stitch fly. Pretty bitchin' stuff. And dates me, huh? GOP exposed with receipts being wrong on everything. One in seven children does not have enough food to lead a healthy and active life. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. I want to show you right now a compilation of all of these Republicans and MAGA Republicans from 2022, all saying the Inflation Reduction Act was going to actually lead to more inflation and would be very harmful to our economy. The Inflation Reduction Act has done the exact opposite. And as the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, says this isn't a moment to spike the football. There's still a lot of work to be done. Nonetheless, it is still important to recognize just how wrong these MAGA Republicans were here and in general, whenever they make a project prediction or try to implement their scare tactics. So I want to show you what some of these Republicans were saying. Then I want to show you what Pete Buttigieg and President Biden have acknowledged. This is Governor of Alaska Mike Dunleavy saying that Biden's Inflation Reduction Act is a massing spending bill with tax increases that will harm Americans and lead to more inflation. Play this clip. Welcome now the man who is the governor of the largest state of the union. He is Mr. Mike Dunleavy. So, Mike, thank you so much for being back with us. Give us your sense from up there in Alaska of your perspective on this Inflation Reduction Act. Well, I, I, I'm not sure if it reduces uh, uh, inflation. As a matter of fact, I, I think it's basic economic statement. When you spend more money in an inflationary period, it, uh, it's difficult to understand how you reduce inflation. For example, we're looking at about a eight percent plus inflation right now staring at us, as well as um, the fact that if this bill passes as it is, it's going to have a tax burden, an average tax burden on the average family of about forty-five hundred dollars over the next decade. So you you couple that tax burden with inflation, uh, it's, it's really hard to see how we reduce it. By, and plus, the, the fact of the matter that the, the, the uh, reduction part of it and the inflation part of it really is in the back end of this. So up front, you're going to get probably, unfortunately, more inflation, and that's going to be problematic for all Americans, including us here up here in Alaska. Here is former Republican Senator, then Senator of Ohio, Rob Portman on Larry Kudlaw show. Larry Kudlaw used to be in the Trump administration, and again, he was wrong about every single thing. Um, but here, Portman says that the Inflation Reduction Act was going to cripple the economy and lead to more inflation, which is the opposite of what took place. Play this clip. It's going to make us less competitive. It's going to hurt lower and middle income workers. Uh, and it's going to hurt consumers. When you tax these companies, and by the way, you're following the tax laws, these Byzantine tax laws, you're actually hurting the workers in the companies and the consumers. That's what all the economic studies show. We also know that this bill is not going to reduce inflation because we have studies, uh, including from this, this organization that Democrats have used in the past to look at these tax bills, uh, that is saying that it's going to add to inflation over the next two years. And so that's true as well. So we, we don't have a bill here that helps with regard to the tax. It makes it more complicated. It makes our economy less efficient. 
but it also is not going to help in terms of the biggest issue we face right now, which is the spiraling inflation. Yeah. Here is MAGA Republican Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis from New York's 11th Congressional District. And here she says that the Inflation Reduction Act is going to hurt manufacturing during a supply during a supply chain crisis, unleash the IRS to shake down Americans and lead to more inflation. Here, play this clip. New York, Ms. Malatakis. Okay, the gentleman's recognized for one minute. Thank you. At a time when the country is facing a 40-year high inflation, American is struggling. Americans are struggling. Economy is contracting, and we're in a recession. They're jamming through a $750 billion bill with a slush fund that will only further fuel inflation, lead to higher energy costs, drive up manufacturing costs as a supply chain crisis persists. What allows the idea to raise taxes during a recession? This will not just hit businesses, but families earning as little as $50,000. And that's exactly why this bill is doubling the IRS by 87,000 agents, a level that's more than the population of Biden's entire hometown of Scranton, Pennsylvania, more than the fans that can fill MetLife Stadium where the Giants play, three times the staff of the Pentagon, four times the Border Patrol agents when we have a border crisis, and eight times the drug enforcement agents when fentanyl is taking record lives of young Americans. And this bill does not include one cop as crime is skyrocketing in cities like mine. This Congress is disconnected with the real problems that the Americans face. And to call it the Inflation Reduction Act is a lie. Finally, I want to show you this debate that our good friend Brian Tyler Cohen was having with MAGA Republican Michael Knowles. And this guy Michael Knowles just... You know, he, he, it's the smugness within which he does the debates, as though he holds all of the answers, but not backed by data, and you'll see how wrong he was here. And again, all of this, uh, all of these debates took place in 2022, right around the time the Inflation Reduction Act was about to be passed, with the MAGA Republicans having this coordinated effort, attacking it, saying it was going to lead to more inflation. And as Brian Tyler Cohen said, look, here's Michael Knowles during our debate last year, insisting the Inflation Reduction Act, quote, will not reduce inflation and will likely increase it. Since this debate, inflation has fallen literally every single month. Here, play this clip. A bill that the Democrats have called the Inflation Reduction Act that even the majority of Democrats don't think will reduce inflation. A study out of Penn Wharton's uh, budget model showed that it actually will exacerbate inflation. Even Bernie Sanders, who is one of the most left-wing senators out there, uh, Bernie Sanders refers to it as the so-called Inflation Reduction Act because it will not it will not reduce inflation and it will actually increase it. So you cite uh, low unemployment uh, certainly after the government is or the the economy rather is shut down by the government for two years when you allow people to go back to work that can have a nice looking effect on unemployment but when you're talking about why people might disapprove of this administration i think it probably has less to do with whatever those scary right-wing talking points are and more to do with the 40-year record high inflation and the the president has got no plan to deal with inflation so what does he do he just redefines inflation he redefines a recession we are now officially in a recession he just tries to change the dictionary definition of that well they can manipulate language all they want. The left loves to do that. They can't change the underlying reality of which the American people are well aware.
je suis Jérôme Outerde, cofondateur de l'entreprise Dualsun. Les panneaux hybrides Dualsun sont des panneaux qui fabriquent à la fois de l'électricité photovoltaïque par leur face avant et de l'eau chaude solaire par leur face arrière. Of course inflation is a problem. It's a, it's a, it's a problem everywhere. There's 8% inflation in Canada. There's 8% inflation in Mexico, 8% inflation in the US, 9% inflation in Europe, in the 9% inflation in the United Kingdom, 10% in Brazil, 10% Netherlands, 10% in Spain. Argentina has 71%, Turkey has 80%. Did Biden cause all of that? Because, you know, we're hearing all of these mixed messages from the right. On one hand, Biden is this senile puppet who's not in control of anything, or he's this, you know, unilaterally responsible for every country in every country on the earth their inflation so it, it's getting kind of difficult to keep up with these i don't think we've ever claimed i don't claim that he's responsible for argentina's inflation but brian if your argument going into the midterms is that joe biden has done a better job handling the economy than the tin pot dictatorships of latin america that seems like a pretty low bar i don't think the people are going to reward democrats for that well let's talk a little so, bit I, I, let me let me say one more let me say one more thing there hasn't been a single republican administration in any of our lifetime that's actually added more jobs or performs better than a democratic administration. Jewelry is having a big moment right now, and with hundreds of products popping up in your feed every day, it can be hard to find a brand you trust. Stylish, affordable jewelry for every occasion, from classic pieces to bold statement looks. Don't know where to show you a clip in a moment of Pete Buttigieg on, uh, on, on, uh, on NBC, um, CNBC, talking with some of these Uh, one of these hosts who was trying to criticize Biden and criticize the Inflation Reduction Act, just being a hater in general. You know, one of the important things to note is that the inflation in America has reduced more than any other G7 nation. America has the fastest growing GDP right now of any G7 nation and the lowest inflation and the fastest decreasing inflation of any G7 nation. And so while there are these global trends, America is leading in the categories where we want America uh, to lead. So here is Pete Buttigieg as the CNBC host tries to attack him and attack the Biden administration. And I think Buttigieg handles it really quite elegantly and appropriately here. Play this clip. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to make you mad or anything. And, and we're having a nice conversation, but but just talking about inflation, it's coming down now, and the administration and President Biden is going to take credit for, for for coming down. My only question is, whenever we talked about it in the past, it it was never anyone's fault that inflation uh, was bad here. From there wasn't the the spending during COVID. It, it was the entire globe. It's around the globe. So we can't do it. It's, it's Putin. It's a Putin price hike. We, we can't do anything about it. It's inflation. It's global. But now that it's coming down, it's like, look what I did. I brought inflation down. Is that, 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 that makes no sense. It's not logically uh, consistent. I, I, I don't think that's quite fair for a couple of reasons. First of all, these international comparisons, yes, we pointed out that you know in, inflation in the United States was not something that was just happening in the United States. It was happening around the world. But we also pointed out all the ways that we were doing better than a lot of our peers around the world. That was true in terms of our economic growth being really the fastest among the wealthy countries recovering from COVID. But I think it's true now in terms of us doing better in the fight against inflation than other countries. The other thing is, you know, whenever we were getting hit with those questions about what are you doing on inflation, we responded with the recipe, the things that we were doing that we think would make a difference. So I think it's totally fair game, especially since a year ago we said we're doing this Inflation Reduction Act, and some people said your Inflation Reduction Act is going to lead to 
inflation going up. I think it's really important now that inflation's going down to point out, like, hey, okay, here's what happened. We had a problem with inflation. We passed an Inflation Reduction Act. Inflation is going down. I, I, how can we not point to that sequence of events? Mm -hmm. well, we really, but none just of that's really. That. That. There's a lot but, of things. That's been, has anything been implemented yet in, in the IRA? I don't. It, it, we couldn't be seeing the benefits of something that hasn't even happened yet. Well, look, it, it's definitely, you know, people are saying that this is going to cause markets immediately to respond by moving in directions that are going to be inflationary. Obviously, that didn't happen. But the other thing I'd point to is the short and medium ter term work that we've done as an administration addressing things that we know contribute to inflation. So in my world, for example, in the transportation space, we talk a lot about supply chain issues, right, and making sure that we make the, the short, medium, right. and long-term investments. You, you deal with supply chain issues, that helps keep shipping costs down. Shipping costs are part of what led to inflation. And, and I do think some of the work we've done there is paying off. Now, that's not a mission accomplished kind of thing, uh, you know, whether we're talking about inflation at large or whether we're talking about supply chains specifically. We still have a lot of issues on everything from uh, multimodal freight right. and, and rail to shoring up the truck industry to getting our ports where they need to be. But much of where we are compared to where we were a year or two ago. And I think that's paying off. And finally, here is President Biden flanked by a Bidenomics poster touting the state of the economy right now with both unemployment down and inflation decreasing. Um, check this clip out. Play it. And our plans work in Bidenomics. We're here. Here's what it looks like. We're 13 million new jobs built across the country and nearly half a million here in Pennsylvania just in the last two and a half years. 800,000 manufacturing jobs, 28,000 here in Pennsylvania alone in the last two and a half years. That's more jobs in two years than any president has created in a four-year term. Unemployment is below 4%, the longest stretch of unemployment below 4% in the last 50 years. We're beginning to come back, folks. We can't because we're giving workers a chance. Unemployment's down, but to the surprise of a lot of economists, so is inflation. Remember the story? In order for inflation to come down, you gotta cut wages for hard-working folks. You gotta have unemployment up in order for inflation to come down. Well, guess what? I never bought that. I don't think the problem in America is too many people are working or the people are making too much money. Instead, we focused on getting Americans into the workforce by fixing a broken supply chain, lowering the cost of product from everything from healthcare to the products we purchase. And by the way, we can go to any issue, right? Remember the MAGA Republican saying, when Title 42 is repealed, uh, the border is going to get worse. Well, there's been 70% less crossings at the border since Donald Trump's horrific Title 42 policy um, was removed and President Biden was able to implement a more comprehensive immigration policy. Uh, MAGA Republicans were wrong about everything, obviously, as it related to COVID. MAGA Republicans are all in on all of the wrong issues, whether it's being against NATO, whether it's being for insurrectionists, whether it was being against for MAGA Republicans against Obamacare, against the Affordable Care Act. They're still trying to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, which tens of millions of Americans rely on for health care. But all of the fear-mongering, remember the fear-mongering, oh, the IRS agents are out to get you, which is just a fear tactic. It's just a lie. That's not what's going on. 
over the course of a decade, IRS jobs had to be replaced, but actually more Americans got their refunds because the IRS was equipped to actually work. So Americans who needed refunds and needed to call the IRS were able to get in touch with them much quicker. And yes, tax cheats are now being scrutinized slightly more. But isn't that something that we want? I mean, they're wrong on every issue. But it's important to take the receipts and show you what they were saying. Because they'll never admit it. They just move on to the next fear-mongering thing that they do. But we're not going to let that go away. We're just going to show you the data. We're going to show you the facts. And I go back to what Buttigieg says. It's not a spike-the-football moment. Like, we still go to the grocery store and say these prices are higher than they should be. At the same time, one of the issues is price gouging made possible by the policies of MAGA Republicans and President Biden's trying to address that through more robust antitrust enforcement procedures, which MAGA Republicans are trying to stop. Okay. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. Hit subscribe. We're on our way to 1.5 million subscribers. Thanks to your support. Check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. Wherever you get audio podcasts, subscribe to the Midas Touch podcast. Have an excellent day. Hit subscribe right now. Hey, Midas Mighty. Love this report? Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at Midas Touch. Keep up with the most important news of the day. What are you waiting for? Follow us now. Okay, crushed by MAGA. 
public and party crushed by murder. That would be an interesting cartoon. Trump is screwed by secret text message for Messages. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. A pretty big story over the weekend from the Washington Post about how Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's former chief of staff, was sending private text messages basically mocking Donald Trump's claims of election fraud. And if you've been a viewer of the Midas Touch Network, this story, which was billed as major breaking news by the Washington Post, would not be big breaking news to you because, remember, we told you back when the January 6th committee was gathering evidence how big these text messages are. Let's just go right to the source before going to Washington Post to remind you of these text messages that Mark Meadows was sending and receiving with a White House lawyer at the time. This was right before the January 6th phone call that Donald Trump had with Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, where Donald Trump threatened Raffensperger, find me the 11,780 votes or else, but even though Mark Meadows coordinated that call between Donald Trump and Brad Raffensperger, um, Mark Meadows was privately mocking Donald Trump in these text messages. And so the one thing to note here as well is that Mark Meadows' son, Blake Meadows, is an attorney. And Blake Meadows, at the time of the uh, aftermath of the 2020 election, when Donald Trump was making all of these false statements about election fraud, Blake Meadows was actually working with the Trump campaign to investigate these allegations. And so Blake, Meadow, Blake Meadows knew that Donald Trump's accusations of voter fraud was just completely and totally false. And he had been trying to determine if there were dead voters um, in Georgia. Um, that was absolutely not the case. I think they found 12 people who had passed away since the general election. But let's just go to the source before reading and going over this Washington Post article. So here here it is right here. These are the messages between Mark Meadows and a top White House lawyer right around January 6th of 2021. It says, just an FYI, Alex Cannon and his team verified that the 10,000 supposed dead people voting in Georgia is not accurate. So the fact that Mark Meadows and the top White House lawyer are recognizing that this claim that was being advanced by Donald Trump and frankly by Meadows, that there were 10,000 dead people voting was not verified. Goes on to say, I didn't hear that claim. It is not accurate. I think I found 22, if I remember correctly. Two of them died just days before the general. And then the response was, it was alleged in Rudy's hearing today, your number is much closer to what we can prove. I think it's 12. Again, these messages are coming from Mark Meadows. And so as Mark Meadows is advancing the big lie on behalf of Donald Trump privately, this is what Mark Meadows is saying. Um, and then Mark Meadows responds, my son, referring to Blake Meadows, my son found 12 obituary, obituaries and six other possibles, depending on the voter roll accuracy. And then the White House lawyer says, that sounds more like it. Maybe he can help Rudy find the other 10,000. And then Mark Meadows responds, LOL. 
the fact that they're mocking Trump like this, but they also find it a joke, right? Like maybe your son, Mark, can help find the other 10,000 votes. And by the way, language that Donald Trump used, right? When he spoke to Brad Raffensperger, Georgia Secretary of State, what did Trump say? Find me 11,780 votes. And here, privately, they're mocking Donald Trump, but they're making a mockery out of our entire democracy right here, joking that Rudy Giuliani, who's working on behalf of the Trump campaign, is just making false allegations that there are 10,000 dead people that voted, and they know it's a lie. So this is critical because it goes to intent. And by the way, it goes to Donald Trump's intent. And by the way, these messages were produced in connection with the January 6th committee, right? So we've talked about these Mark Meadows text messages before. So I found it somewhat curious, although um, I think it demonstrates that special counsel Jack Smith's team is focused on it. That adds to it that the Washington Post build this as like they got a scoop or they got an exclusive. By the way, Washington Post has done some great reporting, but this right here I don't think is a scoop, and I don't think they really acknowledge that these messages were out before, and that we've talked about them here. This is the Washington Post article. It says, before January 6th, Mark Meadows joked about Trump's election claims. In a text, Meadows wrote that his own son was unable to find more than a handful of votes potentially cast in the name of dead voters, people familiar with the messages say. The article goes on to say, Mark Meadows joked about the baseless claim that large numbers of voters were fraudulently cast in the names of dead people in the days before the then White House Chief of Staff participated in a phone call in which Donald Trump alleged there were close to 5,000 dead voters in Georgia and urged Brad Raffensperger, Georgia Secretary of State, to overturn the 2020 election. In a text message that has been scrutinized by federal prosecutors, Mark Meadows wrote to a White House lawyer that his son, Atlanta Area Attorney Blake Meadows, had been probing a possible fraud and had found only a handful of possible votes cast in dead voters' names, far short of what Trump was alleging. The lawyer teasingly responded that perhaps Meadows' son could locate the thousands of votes Trump would need to win the election. The text was described by multiple people familiar with the exchange. The jocular text message, which has not been previously reported, is one of many exchanges from the time in which Trump aides and other Republican officials expressed deep skepticism or even openly mocked the election claims being made publicly by Trump, according to people familiar with the investigation who spoke on a condition of anonymity. I mean, look, it's great that they're speaking on a condition of anonymity, but we have the text messages. You, you've now seen the text messages that Mark Meadows sent to the White House lawyer uh, in late 2020, right before the January 2nd, 2021 call with Mark Meadows. Just to remind you, though, of the Mark Meadows situation, remember, at first, Mark Meadows was cooperating with the January 6th committee. He turned over about two thousand text messages in October of 2021. He was then supposed to turn over the next tranche of records and text messages and be deposed by the January 6th committee on or around December of 2021. He said he was going to participate. He said he was going to turn over more records. But right before uh, Meadows was set to actually sit for his deposition, 
Meadows filed a lawsuit against the January 6th committee and Nancy Pelosi and sought injunctive relief to try to block his testimony. Ultimately, that case was dismissed by a federal judge in Washington, D.C. However, Mark Meadows effectively ran out the clock on the January 6th committee, didn't turn over more text messages, didn't have to have his deposition taken. Many people were speculating, why did the Department of Justice not prosecute Mark Meadows, even though the January 6th committee recommended uh, charges uh, that be pursued by the Department of Justice for contempt of Congress? And remember what I had said at that time. I think the Janu I think the Department of Justice was going to try to focus on making Meadows a cooperating witness in connection with the broader criminal case that they were going to be prosecuting um, with respect to Donald Trump. And unlike the January 6th committee, that struggled when it came to executive privilege claims because there is a small line of cases that basically say in an interbranch dispute that a former uh, president could assert executive privilege vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Congress, but not vis-a-vis -a, -vis a current president. So the Department of Justice is an executive branch department, um, and the only person who could waive executive privilege is the current president, the current executive. So President Biden waived executive privilege. He's not asserting executive privilege. Even if President Biden were to assert executive privilege, um, if there was a compelling need that was showed by the Department of Justice, that would override um, any claims of executive privilege, even if it was uh, asserted in the first place. So Biden has not asserted executive privilege. Um, Mark Meadows has had to turn over the records that he didn't have to turn over. Uh, to the January 6th committee. So Jack Smith's got those additional text messages right now. And we all believe that uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith has turned Mark Meadows into a cooperating witness right now, that Mark Meadows has agreed to um, a proffer session providing all of this information to Special Counsel Jack Smith in exchange for either not prosecuting Meadows or for a lesser charge against Meadows. Um, and all of the kind of MAGA world has not heard from Meadows. They're worried that Meadows has flipped. And by all accounts, Meadows is cooperating with Special Counsel Jack Smith right now. But as it relates to these specific text messages, um, we have reported on that here before on the Midas Touch Network. But this does go to show you that Special Counsel Jack Smith is very, very focused on this because, and messages like this, because it shows that everybody in Trump's orbit knew this was BS. They knew there was no election fraud. They were mocking it. Trump knew. And when Trump knew, that goes to intent. That's what's called the mens rea in a criminal case. And that's the type of smoking gun text messages that are going to be used in a prosecution of uh, Donald Trump. Keep you posted as we learn more, but uh, that's why we follow this step by step by step. I'm Ben Micellis from the Minus Touch Network. Hit subscribe. We're on our way to 1.5 million subscribers thanks to your awesome support. Check us out at patreon.com slash Touch. 
wherever you get audio podcasts, subscribe to the Midas Touch podcast. Have an excellent day. At Midas Touch, we are unapologetically pro-democracy, and we demand justice and accountability. That's why we're spreading our message to Convict 45. That's right. Gear up right now with your Convict 45 tees and pins at store.midastouch.com. That's store.midastouch.com. Focus of Special Counsel Jack Smith and his investigation of 2020 election interference. CNN Senior Legal Affairs Correspondent Paula Reed. Paula Reed is here with me in the Situation Room, along with CNN National Security and Justice reporter Zachary Cohen. Zachary, first to you, tell us more about this Trump Oval Office meeting back in February 2020 and why it's now all of a sudden becoming a focus of this criminal investigation. Yeah, well, remember, this is right at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, and, you know, Trump is in the Oval Office with several of his top national security officials who are walking him through how they plan to protect the 2020 election from widespread fraud, all the things that Trump would later go on to basically claim were happening. But, you know, at the time, Trump was so impressed with what he was hearing from his top officials that he suggested that the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI hold a press conference in part so he could take credit for the work they were doing. Now, sources tell us, you know, a few months later, Trump obviously took a very different um, approach publicly. He was basically claiming that mail-in voting was a source of widespread fraud, that, you know, things like uh, Venezuela was hacking voting machines, all these things that his officials two months later or previously had told him were not happening. So, Multiple officials, former officials, have been asked about this February 2020 meeting where Trump takes a very starkly different perspective on election security than he did throughout the later parts of 2020 and into 2021. Excellent reporting, Zachary. Thank you very much. Now, Paula, you have some new reporting as well. First, here on CNN, about the uh, Rudy Giuliani team that was trying to find what they believed to be election fraud, and clearly there was no election fraud. Exactly. In the days after the 2020 election, Rudy Giuliani was tasked with putting together a team to try to find fraud related to the election. And one of the people on this team was former New York Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick, and his lawyer just handed over all of the work product from that team. And that's significant, Wolf. Much of this has never been seen by investigators because up until now, they've tried to assert privilege over this. They've argued that Bernie and others, they were working as part of a legal team, so it should be privileged. They kept it from the January 6th committee, but it's a little different. When special counsel Jack Smith comes a-calling, he's been in talks with Bernie Carrick to sit down for an interview, and as part of those talks, they agreed that they would get the Trump campaign to waive privilege, and they handed over, I'm told it's thousands of documents. This includes witness statements, research that they did. Now, in addition to these previously undisclosed documents, I'm told that Bernie Carrick has finally scheduled an interview with the special counsel. That'll happen in the next two weeks. But it's a reminder that even if there is a, an indictment of former President Trump this week, the special counsel's work will continue well into the summer. Another we will, uh, guys, stand by. Uh, we have uh, more legal experts uh, joining us right now. Shan Wu and Norm Eisen. Shan, let me start with you. We know prosecutors are honing in right now on this Trump meeting back uh, in February of 2020, in which he insisted, at least to his closest associates there, 
There was no election fraud or anything along those lines. Why do you think this has all of a sudden become a focus of the special counsel investigation? Well, I think it adds you know, to this notion of whether or not Trump knew that his position was illegal. That's what they're trying to prove, meaning he already understood that there's good security in the election and that he's actually happy with it. Bragging to people about it, maybe even want to publicize that. The issue is, no matter how much evidence of that is, exists, he can always say, well, I changed my mind later, or in my heart, I really didn't trust that. So I think the key for prosecutors is going to be showing his intent as to committing the illegal actions. Someone might believe that, you know, someone's walking down the street is actually possessed, doesn't give him the right to kill them. So ultimately, that subjective belief of his can be overcome by showing he deliberately was taking actions that were illegal. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, Norm, Trump seems to have a history, as you know, of switching between praising and criticizing election security uh, right now. Uh, the prosecutors, they want to parse through to determine what his state of mind? Uh, yes, it does go to his state of mind. And both this earlier meeting and also the um, evidence that uh, Mr. Carrick and Giuliani and the team found no evidence of wrongdoing, they're both building blocks. Shan is right. Uh, what happened earlier in the year is not dispositive, but it is one element of showing the president thought there was no problem then. He was told that his team learned of no actionable significant fraud, and so you assemble piece by piece in a mosaic the defendant's culpable state of mind. Until that point, we know for a fact that um, months later, Several uh, top officials were telling Trump in another Oval Office meeting that there was still no evidence of voter fraud to do things like seizing voting machines. So as Norm said, you know, putting together those pieces from February to December 2020, you know, Trump's top officials were telling him the same thing over and over again. And prosecutors wanted to know what, how did Trump interpret this information from his advisors? How was he listening to them? And what was, how did that impact his decision making? Yeah, those are critically important questions. How significant are these latest trove of documents from Bernie Carrick? that the special counsel and his team are going through right now? Well, they could be very significant going to what he actually learned about the absence of any fraud. I think the confusing point to me looking at it is why they're being turned over right now. It's not Kerrick's privilege. I mean, it's Trump's. And his attorney you know, is doing the right thing, checking with the Trump campaign. Curious to me, he's checking with the campaign versus another Trump personal lawyer on the team. I think that does indicate to me, how blurry that distinction has become between the campaign and his legal defense is like all the same now. But his attorney cleared it. I kind of doubt there's anything too damaging in there. Otherwise, they wouldn't have cleared it. It's <laughs> you know, important. And Norm Giuliani, as we know, he testified for what, eight hours before that federal grand jury. Carrick is set to testify in a couple of weeks. This could be potentially very significant, all of this testimony. Uh, indeed, uh, both for the former president, but also uh, for other individuals. Giuliani himself uh, may have exposure as a result of this. I don't expect that whatever Jack Smith's timetable is for charging Donald Trump, um, as coming out of that target letter, that this huge trove of documents and this additional testimony is going to slow him down or speed him up. But it's important, and of course he can use it, as he prosecutes the case whenever he may charge. Yeah, I think it's all significant indeed. What can you tell us about the timeline, Paula, from this grand jury? Because there's got to be another grand jury vote and meeting before there's an additional indictment. 
That's right. And this grand jury usually meets on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We know last Thursday was the deadline for former President Trump to appear. Uh, he passed uh, on that opportunity. So now a potential indictment can come any day. But even if we see an indictment of former President Trump this week, I think we definitely expect that this investigation will continue likely for months. We have some pretty significant witnesses, and they're not coming in for several weeks now. We also saw this in Mar-a-Lago. They indicted the former president and Walt Nada, but then their investigation continued. So if the former president is indicted this week, it may not be the final indictment in this case. Yeah, and, and Zach, what, what do you think about the timing? Because you're doing a lot of reporting on this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it remains to be seen how this might impact a potential indictment if that, you know, changes the, the trajectory of what we've been seeing from Jack Smith. Like Paul said, you know, these are significant witnesses that have not yet come in and spoken to the grand jury or to the special counsel. So, you know, we'll have to see if that does impact the timing. You think another indictment norm is imminent or could it be weeks away? Well, Fonnie uh, Willis, the Fulton County DA, famously said indictment was imminent months ago. What imminent means in the criminal justice system is sometimes a little different. I do think that we're talking about days or weeks, not months. Typically, when you get a target letter, indictment follows on. We'll be looking for signs of acceleration, Wolf, like when Trump's lawyers are seen going into the Justice Department, as happened with Mar-a-Lago. That's a sign, hey, start the countdown. Uh, but I think it's soon. I suspect you're right. All right, guys, thank you very much. Coming up, a historic house of worship. In, there's breaking news we're following right now. The U.S. Justice Department has just filed a lawsuit to force Texas to remove floating barriers in the Rio Grande which federal officials now say are endangering yeah. migrants and Border Patrol agents. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is joining us live from the White House. Priscilla, you've been doing a, a wonderful reporting on what's going on along the border. Walk us through this Department of Justice lawsuit, and is there reaction from the White House? Well, this is a significant development and really escalates the feud between President Biden and Texas Governor Greg Abbott with the Justice Department moving forward on its lawsuit against those floating barriers in the Rio Grande. Now, this lawsuit really focuses on a clause in the law about navigating waters. And so there is not mention of migrants and the concern it poses to their safety. But in a statement uh, from uh, Vanita Gupta, they say this floating barrier poses threats to navigation and public safety and presents humanitarian concerns. Now, well, this is the outcome of Texas Governor Greg Abbott defying uh, an, a request by the Justice Department to remove these barriers on his own. He said instead today that he would see President Biden in court. Now, the White House has also weighed in on this, calling the Texas governor's actions on the border, quote, dangerous and unlawful. And to give you some context here, Abbott launched an operation on the U.S.-Mexico border in 2021. And over the last two years, officials within the Biden administration were watching what he was doing, including, for example, sending migrants to Democratic-led cities without coordination, as well as having more uh, Texas National Guard and Texas troopers along the Texas-Mexico border. But this really came to a head over the last week when there were concerns about the mistreatment of migrants. And the Justice Department went on to say that there would be an ongoing assessment about that mistreatment. Now, that is separate from today's lawsuit, but what it goes to show is that this feud is just continuing to escalate over this very delicate political issue of the handling of the U.S.-Mexico border. And, uh, Wolf, I gotta tell you, when I talk to officials, it's not just about the mistreatment of migrants that they're concerned about, it's also about interference in federal government operations. 
Agents over the last month have been sending more and more reports to headquarters about what they were seeing on the border and observing with Texas, which they have historically worked well with when it comes to operations along the Texas-Mexico border. So uh, this political feud will really come to a head in the courts, and we'll see all of that play out over the next few weeks and months when it comes to what happens next with these floating barriers. Yeah, very dramatic developments indeed. Priscilla Alvarez at the White House, thank you. Uh, meanwhile, top advisors to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis met with key donors and fundraisers over the weekend, promising a new direction to try to jumpstart his fledgling White House bid. This comes as the campaign is also acknowledging it needs to cut costs as fundraising fell short, way short of expectations, and expenses have piled up. CNN's Jessica Dean is following all of this for us. So what are you hearing about this new direction, Jessica, for the DeSantis campaign? Well, we're hearing leaner and meaner. Wolf, that's what we're hearing from the campaign. And according to one source, this was kind of part mea culpa and part rallying cry over the weekend, where they were really trying to go to these donors, go to these fundraisers, and acknowledge what they believe has not gone the way they wanted it to. And that's what the, with fundraising and messaging, and then try to put together a strategic plan to move forward. So that's what they're talking to donors about what we're going to see externally and on the road. I'm headed to Iowa later this week where the governor is going to now go on a bus tour. He's committed to seeing all 99 counties there in Iowa. They want him, they're, they're kind of the new messaging is DeSantis is everywhere. They want him in front of small groups. They want him talking to people, that traditional retail politics that they really have come to expect in these early states like Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. And all of this is happening as we got some new state polling from Fox Business yesterday that really gives us a nice snapshot of where things are. And if you take a look in Iowa, former President Donald Trump is just up there very high, leading the pack, and then some 30 points behind is uh, Governor Ron DeSantis and the others. It's a similar situation in South Carolina. And what this tells us, Wolf, is that these candidates have got to find a way to break through. And so far, that's not happening. Uh, when you look at that polling, a lot of them looking to that debate stage. We're now about one month out from that first Republican debate where they think they can break through. What do we know about, for that first debate, uh, less than a month away now, what do we know about who's qualified to be on that debate stage, at least so far? Right, so we know the RNC set these requirements up to determine who's going to be on that debate stage. So today, we know that seven candidates reached the polling requirements. So there's fundraising requirements, polling requirements. Because of those polls I just talked about that came out yesterday, uh, seven candidates uh, have, have reached that threshold. It's Trump, DeSantis, Pence, Haley, Scott, Ramaswamy, and Christie. Now, they're also going to have to cover uh, those fundraising numbers that have been put in place, that fundraising criteria. And of those, all of them have done so except the former vice president, Mike Pence. He hasn't done that yet. Uh, but the North Dakota governor, Doug Burgum, has done the fundraising piece of it. So we're starting to see what that debate stage might look like, take shape. One big question that everyone's wondering about is, will former President Donald Trump be taking part? Uh, we don't know yet. He's, he keeps saying no, no, right. no, but we shall see right. what happens over the next few weeks. Jessica Dean, thank you very much. Uh, joining us now, Republican presidential candidate and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. Governor, thanks so much for joining us. As you, as you well know, seven Republicans have now qualified for the first debate stage set uh, near the end of August. As Jessica just reported, you're not among them. How confident are you, Governor, that you will be on the stage in Milwaukee? Actually, a growing confidence because the momentum has shifted our direction. Uh, you know, you've had uh, the Fox Business poll. Uh, we also had the additional poll that came out today, the Rasmussen poll. And it's my understanding that that 
uh, actually will put us uh, as qualifying for the debate in terms of the polling numbers. And that was a significant boost for us. We still have to meet the objective of the donor qualification, which is 40,000 unique donors. We're not there yet. I fully expect to be there. We're working every strategy to make sure we have those individual donors uh, for that debate stage. And of course, uh, ASA 2024 is where you go to make sure that uh, we can qualify. In these new uh, Fox Business polls, and I'll put them up on the screen, surveying Republican voters uh, in key early states in Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, we got, uh, we got, there you see the numbers there, you see Trump uh, way, way ahead. You're polling at 1% in both of those states, far behind the front runner, clearly Donald Trump, who's at 50%. Uh, how do you turn your campaign around and raise those numbers? Well, of course, the debate is an important part of the equation because, you know, people are waiting to see the candidates in contrast to each other, both their positions, but also uh, how they conduct themselves. Can they lead uh, the, the country in the right direction? So the debate is important, but there'll be multiple debates. So this is six months out to the uh, Iowa caucus. So there's time there. It is a state that I'll be at the Iowa State Fair. You know, I'll make sure that we're doing the retail politicking. It's a state very similar to Arkansas in terms of the importance of small communities, the importance of the agricultural community. I relate there. I look forward to campaigning there. But you've got to work at it every day. And of course, again, the focus getting on the debate and showing the experience that I have in terms of head of the DEA, Under Secretary of Homeland Security, handling border issues and be able to bring our country together to address those significant issues we face. The uh, Utah Republican Senator Mitt Romney, himself a former Republican presidential candidate, has a new op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. I don't know if you saw it, but it's calls on GOP donors to help urge non-viable candidates to get out of the race. He writes in part, uh, and I'm quoting him now, left to their own inclinations, expect several of the contenders to stay in the race for a long time. They will split the non-Trump vote, giving him the prize. Romney says candidates should get out after the first four states in order to coalesce behind a single Trump challenger. What's your response to Romney? <laughs> well, of course, I have great respect for Senator Romney, and he's been through it, so he's in a position to uh, understand the challenge ahead. But the interesting part to me is that he wants candidates to drop out before you get to Super Tuesday, which covers many of the southern states. And so, you know, being from Arkansas, having strength in the southern states, uh, I can be competitive here. My goal has always been to be, uh, to be strong through that Super Tuesday. So I would hate to think that you're going to cut out the Super Tuesday states in terms of a voice in selecting our nominee and hopefully the next president of the United States. So uh, it, it, what's critical is that we do self-evaluation. And if you don't have the money to compete, if you don't have uh, good numbers in some of those early states, you've got to evaluate. But don't set uh, criteria this far in advance for what is in my judgment, the most unpredictable political year in my lifetime. And so there's a lot going to happen between now and then. Let's don't set these uh, criteria that if you're not uh, at a certain point, you've got to drop out. Let's see where we are at that particular point in time. 
your Republican 2024 rival, Governor Ron DeSantis, is overhauling his campaign amid his lagging poll numbers, as we all know. His team says they're embracing his position as an underdog candidate. Uh, let me get your reaction. What do you make of that? Well, my reaction is that, uh, you know, when you've raised the kind of money that he has, when he's got the name recognition that he has, uh, I would be the insurgent. I would be uh, going against the establishment. Uh, but the fact is that uh, he has dropped significantly into the double digits. Uh, and most of the other candidates, including myself, are in single digits. And so, uh, you know, it is a test of resilience. It's a test of adjusting as you need to. But I'll compete when it comes to the ideas of how we can present a balanced budget in Washington. We can enhance freedom. We can solve the border crisis. And we can do it in a way that does not create chaos and that, to me, is what my candidacy uh, represents. So we'll see what works. Uh, we're all going to come together in the end, but we have competing messages, and uh, clearly his has faltered in the last couple of months. Uh, we think we've got some momentum, and we ought to be able to continue that. All right, we, we will continue our conversations. Republican presidential candidate Asa Hutchinson, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Wolf. Just ahead, police continue searching the long apps. Turning now to dramatic developments in Israel and a newly passed law that is stoking major division and outrage throughout the country. The Knesset approving Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's judicial overhaul that limits the Israeli Supreme Court's power to check Netanyahu's power. CNN senior international correspondent Fred Pleitkin is joining us live from Jerusalem right now. Fred, give us the latest on the backlash and it's very dramatic after this very controversial vote. Yeah, very controversial is absolutely right, and certainly pivotal things happening inside the Knesset today. But I can tell you, outside of the Knesset, and certainly in this entire area, especially around the Israeli Supreme Court, there were big protests that happened here. There were crowds that uh, were out here on the streets the entire day, and it was during the evening then that things became ugly here on the streets when the police moved in with water cannon trucks. Here's what happened. <laughs> A country very much divided. With many angry Israelis saying they feel the very foundation of the state of Israel is at risk. We were trying to do our best in order to protect democracy in our country. After Israel's parliament passed a law that would severely curb the Supreme Court's ability to check the government's powers. I think it has an impact on the world. here say they feel a sense of duty to come out here on the street and protest. And a lot of them say they're not sure whether or not this in the end is going to make a difference. But they also say right now, at this point in Israel's history, staying at home simply isn't an option. The act of the reasonableness bill passed the Knesset after more than 26 hours of debate. All opposition members of the Knesset walked out in protest as the right-wing and far-right members passed the bill put forward by Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition. Netanyahu moving full speed ahead, not missing a beat, despite getting a pacemaker fitted just hours before the vote. Today, we performed a democratic need. According to most people of Israel, this is the essence of democracy, to do what the majority wish. 
Moderate and left-wing groups have been protesting every weekend for the past 29 weeks, and now more than 10,000 military reservists say they will refuse to serve if the judicial overhaul limiting the Supreme Court's powers is enacted. They fear Israel's democracy will be shattered. I've been out for years now, I think for six years, I've been against this government. And it's not about this government, it's about one person. It's about Bibi Netanyahu. And many vow to stay out in the streets of Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and other cities if the government refuses to abandon the judicial overhaul. And this, that's one of the things that we have to keep in mind, is that the bill that was passed today by the Knesset is only one of many measures that the government wants to overtake to overhaul the judiciary, not just, uh, of course, curbing the powers of the Supreme Court, but also, for instance, making it easier for the government uh, for the government to appoint justices uh, in the Supreme Court as well. And again, the protesters here are saying they are going to keep coming out unless those measures are abandoned. Well, uh, Fred Blackie reporting from Jerusalem. Fred, thank you very much. Joining us now, the former U.S. ambassador... Mm chào mọi người chào mừng mọi người quay trở lại với kênh của mình hôm nay thì mình sẽ hướng dẫn cho mọi người cách móc một ký hiệu biểu tượng hòa bình như thế này bây giờ thì chúng ta sẽ bắt tay để đánh nhau nhé ta cần phải lấy ký hiệu sau đây chúng ta sẽ lấy ký hiệu hai đầu là số đỏ và một thanh tư trên này chỉ có ký móc đầu hai cho nên không tiên chúng ta dùng cái Trump posts most dangerous threats yet as he gets more desperate. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch. Yeah, you are. Hi there. Got another storm coming. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. Look, it is so critical to show you the types of things that. Donald Trump is talking about the dangerous rhetoric, the QAnon death cult messages that he's posting because our legacy media refuses to cover these things. But it is equally important that we don't just cover what Donald Trump is posting or Media's saying, but we need to compare it also to what President Biden is doing and saying, because as President Biden said, don't compare me to the Almighty, compare me to the alternative. Let me just show you what Donald Trump is posting, and then let's compare it to what President Biden is posting and doing. So Donald Trump reposted Ted Nugent, <laughs> stating the following. January 6th will be remembered as the day the government set up a staged riot to cover up the fact that they certified a fraudulent election. Now, that would be deranged if Ted Nugent spread that dangerous lie and conspiracy in and of itself, but you have Donald Trump reposting that, and you have the entire modern-day Republican Party supporting Donald Trump saying things like this. This isn't adjacent to fascism. This is outright fascism, and we need to call it out. So let's compare that repost to what is President Biden posting. This is the meme or image that... Somewhere else, completely weird. 
is President Biden posting? This is the meme or image that President Biden's posting. Small businesses are the heart and soul of our communities, and my administration is proud to invest in them. 12.2 million small business applications filed. So who would you rather be the leader of the United States? Someone who's singing songs with the January 6th insurrectionists and saying that January 6th is a big deep state conspiracy or whatever lie Donald Trump is posting or reposting? Or someone talking about small business applications filed and somebody talking about our economy? Hey, this just happened as well. When Donald Trump was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, here's what Donald Trump is talking about when he's being asked a question by the audience, how has your faith grown? A very basic question that Trump is incapable of answering because he has no faith. He's a malignant narcissist. And watch how the malignant narcissist answers this question. Play the clip. And President Trump, I am so glad you're here and I feel so blessed to ask you a question. My My question is, how has your 